to look at the evidence for the Christian worldview and determine that Christianity was, in fact, true. After becoming a Christ follower in 1996, Jim continued to take an evidential approach to truth as he examined the Christian worldview. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. Jay Warner also served as a youth pastor for several years, then planted a church in 2006. Along the way, he has created and built the pleaseconvinceme.com website, blog, and podcast as a place to post and to talk about what he has discovered related to the evidence supporting Christianity. Jim has appeared on television and radio explaining the role that the evidence plays in the Christian definition of faith and defending the historicity of Jesus, the reliability of the Bible, and the truth of the Christian worldview. Jim speaks at churches, retreats, and camps as he speaks, as he seeks to help people become confident Christian case makers. Let's welcome Jay Warner Wallace. Thanks so much to Jason and Phil and Jim and Colton and everyone who's kind of been gracious to have me. I appreciate it. And we're going to talk about some stuff today that I think is actually a form of worship. You know, we talk about how we worship God. And if you go to church, you often are involved in singing, worship, praying. And sometimes we neglect this idea of worshiping God with our mind. You know, how is it we can actually give God every thought, right? And so we're going to try to do that today. Now, I'm going to walk you through a few steps. First of all, for those of you who maybe are looking at the evidence and wondering what role evidence plays, let me just be clear about one thing. Jim Wallace is not smart enough to come to this faith on his own. God did something first, but he used the evidence as a way to demonstrate for me because he knew who I was. I was somebody who was very much uh, firmly committed to an evidential approach. And God did something to kind of remove the hostility I had toward him and then allowed me to look at the evidence fairly because I never would have given it a fair shake. I didn't have anybody in my life who was a Christian. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. My dad's still a pretty committed atheist. I can tell you a story about that later. But, um, you know, so I didn't really have anybody to show me any of this stuff from an unbiased perspective. I had a really biased, I hated it. <laughs> okay, I just thought it was a joke. And everyone who I knew who was a cop who was a Christian really could not offer a defense for what they believed. And so I just didn't think I could ever engage in something for which there was no legitimate defense. And I just stayed out. Uh, but I want to share with you some things that I think will help you. And here's what I think is so important. You know, Assemblies of God are actually pivotal in doing some of the early work in identifying a problem we have right now in Christendom. And here's the problem. If you are a freshman in college as a Christian, there is a very strong likelihood you will not be a Christian by the time you're a senior in college. It's just the, the, the reality of it. AOG did some of the first work on this, but Barna's done work on it, Gallup's done work on it, Lifeway's done work on it, every denomination has done work on this. The attrition rate is somewhere between 60 and 80 percent. Lifeway says about a third will eventually come back to the church, but they don't come back for the right reason, if you ask me. Because when you poll them as to why they leave, they'll tell you, we left because we don't think it's true. We don't think it's evidentially true. It doesn't make any sense to us. We like science. We are scientific people. It doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence for this. Now, when they come back to the church, I wish they would say, well, we did some work on this, we studied it, and we found out that it was true. That's not what they say. You know what they say when they, why they came back? Why do you think they come back? Yes, they're raising their families now. And they want the community the church provides. So they're leaving for one reason and coming back for another. That troubles me. <laughs> and it's sad, because when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell my young people, if you want to run off to college and do stupid things because you want to chase your desire, I get that. I did that. That's on you. But if you want to run off because you don't think it's true anymore, that's on me. 
I have to help you understand this is true, and if you choose to ignore it for a season, fine, but you're going to have to come back to the truth eventually. So a lot of what we do in this room today is about not only strengthening our own confidence in what we believe is true, but it's to help our young people hold on to their confidence and not walk away the first time because they'll have seen this case before they get to college. And the first person who's going to raise an objection with them ought to be us instead of their university professor. So if if nothing else, if this helps you to prepare your kids, your grandkids, or yourself, great. That's the goal. And I'm going to try to pass on some tools that will help you to think like a detective. And that means that some of this stuff is going to be very much rooted in police work, okay? And that's just who I am, so you can imagine that's probably why I take this approach. Okay, I've been a cop for 25 years, and I came from a tradition of cops. My dad was a police officer, so granted, I was born during his academy. My son, Jimmy, who has my dad's name, was born during my academy. So we have a multi-generational law enforcement family. And I didn't think for, I was probably necessarily going to become a police officer, although in high school I did toy with the idea. So here I am with my dad, uh, you know, graduating as an explorer. But I went through a period during the 80s when I chased my, uh, my love of art, and I became a designer, and then an architect. I got my master's degree at UCLA. I call it architorture, because it really felt like architorture. And uh, eventually, you know, I just had to come back to law enforcement because it seemed like the right fit for me. So at 27, I was in the police academy again, and I've been there ever since. And you, when you work a police officer, you, you start off doing patrol. You have to push that black and white around. You know, you have to answer calls. Did a lot of that. Spent three years working in gangs. That was a lot of fun. Learned a lot during those three years. And then I eventually went to SWAT for three years. I had a good time jumping off things and shooting guns. So that's the stuff that every kid who wants to be a cop wants to do. So we did, I did that for a few years. And then I eventually worked undercover and uh, followed around career criminals where I basically got a chance to watch guys do robberies and burglaries, which is a lot of fun. The most exciting time I had was four years <clears throat> just following bad guys around on surveillance teams. Also, you get a chance to grow your hair out. Didn't cut my hair for four years. And I eventually had to grow a goatee, though, because uh, I noticed that on my kids, on Jimmy's uh, kindergarten pictures, uh, he would have you go to like open house and all the kids would have their pictures on the wall. Well, my son's pictures all look like, you know, the same exact hairstyle for both parents, you know. So I grew a goatee just so you could tell which one was the dad. That helped. Okay, now I've been working uh, homicides for about 15 years. And the last 12, I've been working really nothing but cold cases. And cold cases are homicides that are not solved. You know, every other kind of, of crime has a statute of limitations. If you do a burglary or a robbery and enough years go by, they can't come after you because it's expired. But homicides never close. They always stay open. There's no statute of limitations. So if we've got a case from 30 years ago, it's unsolved, we can go back after that guy. And my cases generally run from 1979 to about 1988. I have one case left that has to go to trial. It'll go to trial next year. It's from 1979. So these are old cases. And there's some similarities. We're going to use some tools that we learned in these cases we're going to use all day today. I'm going to help you put your hands around these tools. And these cases typically do get national attention, so we've been on Dateline three or four times, we've been on Fox, and we've been on Court TV. These are cases that are are interesting because they're so old, and people think that that's, you know, everyone loves cold case for some reason. We never watch those shows, okay, just so you know, (laughs) because nothing on the shows seems like it's accurate enough to be realistic to us, but... But they, I understand they're entertaining. As a matter of fact, I had one on last night. I was just surfing before I went to bed. Sure enough, Cold Case was on Ion. And I don't have cable at home. But there's a, a channel called Ion that has Cold Case on it. And so I was, here I am sitting. I'm thinking, oh, how stupid am I right now? I'm, I need to go to bed, and I'm watching Cold Case. 
Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how these things turn out. I mean, it, but it is kind of neat to see. Anyway, never mind. So uh, now I get a chance to kind of go around the country. I didn't get saved until I was 35, and I share these principles with all of you, trying to help you learn uh, some of these principles and apply them to the Christian worldview. Now, this is my last day. I, I retired and then got hired back. So I'm, I'm only working part-time now, which is better. I get to come out to Chicago area on weekends, right? So it's a lot better. But uh, the last full day I had, full-time, was I told my sergeant, I said, hey, I want to get back in my uniform, which I hadn't put on in like 20 years, because it was really tight. <laughs> and I said, I want to get back in a patrol car and just work a day, work a regular beat with my son, who works a patrol car. So we spent the entire day, uh, mostly just drinking monsters right here uh, to try to stay awake and uh, handling all these ridiculous calls that we typically get. And he was telling me, hey, we need to get involved in some kind of a shooting today. I'm thinking, dude, I'm in my last day of employment. Like, I'm going to get involved in a shooting. Yeah, that's what kids do. So anyway, what I want to do is I want to share with you what three generations of law enforcement has taught our family. Because for the last 52 years, if you called our agency and asked for Jim Wallace, Officer Jim Wallace, there was somebody there to answer the phone. And for the next uh, 30 years, there'll be somebody there still, because all of us have the same name. We're like the George Foreman of law enforcement. We all have the same name. But, uh, but you know, we, we, someone is going to be there to answer this. And I think there's a certain level of expertise that I can now share with you that will help you to understand how to work through these issues. So here's the first principle I want you to get your hands around. We're going to use it all day. It's this principle of the distinction between what's possible and what's reasonable. That's a really important distinction to make and to hold on to as you're looking at any piece of evidence or any kind of a case, is what is possible and what is reasonable. Remember, anything is possible. And you hear that expression all the time, and it's true. But not anything is reasonable. And the distinction between possible and reasonable is, is huge in court cases. Huge. Anything's possible, but what's reasonable is only the best inference from the evidence you have in front of you. And so we need to make that distinction because people will throw things at you all the time that are possible, and that's fine. I used to say, you know, is it possible that Jesus is a recreation of prior mythologies like Mithras, Osiris, or Horus? Absolutely it's possible. It's not reasonable. But anything's possible. Possible has no power. We don't even allow jurors to speculate on what's possible in jury rooms. We tell them up front, don't speculate. You have to have evidence. So, for example, I had a case from 1988. A guy was, uh, killed his wife for about $40,000 of, of his retirement money. He was an aerospace engineer. He uh, divorced his wife. He had $800,000 in his retirement. She wanted forty grand. Not too much, I don't think, right, for being married 25 years. He didn't want to give her the forty grand, So she managed to figure out a way to work it into the sale of the house. So when the house sold, she was going to get her forty grand extra up front. And so she... Managed to get a judge to sign this. Great. Sold the house on a Wednesday. He found out on Thursday that she got the extra forty grand. He killed her on a Friday. And when we got to trial, the defense attorney said, well, isn't it possible, ladies and gentlemen, that this is I mean, it's quite reasonable. This could be a uh, um, burglary that went bad. How do we know it's not a burglary that went bad? So, you know, she's packing the house. Somebody comes in to do a burglary. They finds her in the house. Oh, sorry. He has to kill her. So we had to, in rebuttal, we had to say, well, hang on a minute. You can't even consider that. Do you have any evidence of forced entry? No. Do you have any evidence anything was taken from the house? No. Any evidence anyone's been in the house other than the husband and the wife? No. Any evidence there's a burglary series in the neighborhood? No. Then you've got no evidence upon which to base your conclusions about a burglary. You're speculating. It's possible, but it's not the reasonable inference from evidence. If anyone in the jury room even brings up a burglary, you tell them time out. We can't go there. There's no evidence for that. 
That's the difference between possible and reasonable. Even here in this room, we can say, well, isn't it possible that we're not really here? Isn't it possible that we've actually been abducted by aliens and we think we're here right now? And that when we wake up tomorrow morning, we're going to discover you've all been in an alien-induced trance? Isn't that at least possible? (laughs) Can you go with me as far as the conversation goes? Let me make my point. The point is, yes, if you, you have to say, well, that's possible. Even if it's just, you know, a, one half of one percent, that puts it impossible. But it's not reasonable. So you already get the distinction, don't you? Now, I don't want to be overstating what's impossible. I don't think that my atheist friends believe in crazy things like this and would say that those are actually reasonable. But it's always about measuring what's possible, right? So I don't want to overplay this. So let's take a look at how we even discover what is reasonable. How do we know what is reasonable? Because reasonable is the standard in in jury trials. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the standard we use. Okay, now we're going to talk about how you might even assess what's reasonable by using a process I'm going to teach you. And we have to do it. We have to kind of look at something kind of gruesome. And there's no young people in the room, so I don't even ask for permission. I'm just going to do it. We're going to start by looking at a death scene. I get called to death scenes all the time. Not every death scene is a homicide. Some death scenes are really not malicious at all. And we have to figure out whether we're going to work it as a homicide. If it's a homicide, I have to stay all night. If it's not a homicide, I get to go home. So this first decision is important to me, right? Because if it's anything other than a homicide, I don't don't care. Sorry, I mean, that's not what I'm doing. So let's take a look at a death scene together and just describe the kinds of death and how we determine which is most reasonable. It'll help you. So here, for example, is our death scene. We've got a dead guy laying face down. By the way, do you guys have Trader Joe's in Chicago? You do? So do you agree with me? Who in the world would kill a Trader Joe's employee? Right? That's like the best place in the world to buy food, right? So I mean, I can't imagine anyone would want to do this, but let's just do my imagination for a second. Let's just say you find this guy on the floor. We have to figure out what kind of death this is. And there are four ways to die. Four kinds of explanations when you have a dead body on the ground. Do you know what they are? What are they? Accidental. Very good. What else? Natural causes. What else? What? Homicide. One more. Suicide. These are the four kinds of death. And so we have to take a look at these and ask ourselves... Does the evidence in the room incline us to one of these as the most reasonable explanation over the others? Now, what evidence do we have in the room? We have a dead guy, and he's laying face down. That's really all we have right now. So tell me, which of these four can I take off my list, given the evidence I have in the room? Suicide. Well, what if he took pills to kill himself? Anybody else? Yeah, we really can't take anything off the wall, right? Because it could be anything. He could have fallen on something. He could have had a, you know, a hemorrhage. Anything. Who knows what could have happened? So we need to change the scenario to see if there's a more reasonable. Let's just take and change the scenario. Let's say instead of a guy laying on the ground, a uh, dead guy laying on the ground, we have a dead guy lying on the ground in a pool of his own blood that seems to be centered around the center of his torso. Now the evidence has changed slightly. We have a dead guy in the room laying face down in the pool of his own blood. Which of these now can we rule out reasonably? Well, what if he had like a brain hinder and he bled out through his nose? Yeah, the location of the blood does not, would be out here somewhere centered around his head, wouldn't it? This blood is centered around his torso. What's the natural opening you have in your torso? Looks like your belly button's really loose. But other than that, what do you really have 
in your torso you could bleed out from. Nothing. I think this is a reasonable uh, scratch at this point. It's not, but it could still be. Could it, now let's go a little more. Can we get rid of um, an accidental? Not necessarily, huh? Because maybe he fell on something. When I roll him over, I'll discover what it was. So we have to go a little further. So let's change the scenario just a little bit more. Instead of having a dead guy laying face down in a pool of his own blood, let's have a dead guy laying face down in a pool of his own blood with a knife sticking in his back. Okay, now I think we can go back to our explanations and maybe we can make a change. Here's our evidence again. We've added one more element. Can we rule out another, can we rule out accidental? No? Can you think of a way he could back into that knife? It's pretty deep. Look how, look how deep it is. It's possible. <laughs> Good, I want you thinking that way. It's definitely in the range of possible, but is it in the range of reasonable anymore? How about suicide? Can we rule out suicide? I think suicide is in some ways uh, maybe even a little more reasonable than a, a, an accidental. I can't imagine how I wouldn't notice that before I uh, you know, backed away from it, but, but you could reach there. Maybe you don't like the sight of your own blood. You don't want to see that thing going, but I could, I could do, I'd do it back here. You see how low it is on his back? You could reach that. Look at his arms almost right. Look, it's almost like his arm is in that position. Just for the sake of argument, let's just leave it on there for now. Because I want to change the scenario again anyway. So here we go. I think we can rule out accidental. But let's go back and see if uh, we change the scenario just a little bit more. What if he's laying face down in a pool of his own blood with a knife in his back and multiple stab wounds? Now I think we've kind of upped the ante a little bit, right? So when we go back to our reasonable explanations, if this guy's doing a suicide, he has got a high level of pain. He's very flexible. He can do all kinds of stuff I can't even do anymore without throwing my shoulder out. So I think that we could... Go ahead. I was going to say, going back to the suicide, that knife, looking at the knife... Yes. It doesn't look like that knife could go all the way through his body. How would all that blood be on the floor? I'm normally playing. It looks like there's have to be multiple... Yes. Yes. And also, well, you know, of course, as I'm photoshopping this, I'm thinking of the end from the beginning, but you're right. But, but, look, at, but look at also just the angle on the knife. If I was going to put that in my own back, I probably wouldn't be that, in that position, right? It'd probably be twisted laterally because my hand has to twist that way. But it, that's a whole other issue. So again, I think we've kind of looked at this and said, okay, now with all this information in the room, I think we probably could get rid of suicide. But let's just say we wanted to be sure. What if we had this scenario? He's laying face down, multiple stab wounds, knife in his back, and we have bloody footsteps leading away from the body. Well, then I think we really have a, a series of, of evidences in the room, and here they are in the list, that really make this one solution, a homicide, the most reasonable inference from the evidence. Make sense? So now you understand how we, how we do this process of taking a look at the... By the way, this is my son, Jimmy. Before he was a cop, he just got in the academy. That's why his head was shaved there. But he worked for five years at Trader Joe's before he became a police officer. He's still alive, just so you know. I just want to show you a picture of him so young kids wouldn't faint or whatever. So the point we're trying to say here is that what we do in this process is called abductive reasoning. And abductive reasoning is simply taking a look at the evidence in the room and then going back and forth between the evidence in the room and the possible explanations to see which... Uh, explanation makes the most sense of this evidence list. Here's our explanation. So the question is simply, by going back and forth between these two, we're going to see which is most reasonable. This is what detectives do all the time. This is what jurors have to do all the time to get to the most reasonable inference from the evidence. And I think we could take this crime scene. Here we have our homicide crime scene, and we could extend it out. What if the crime scene wasn't just this side, inside of this room, but it was, in fact, the entire universe? 
are there pieces of evidence in the universe that need to be explained? And if they are, what would the possible explanations be? Now today we're going to talk, and this is going to be this first session, is going to be our mind-stretching session, okay? Because we're going to talk about three pieces of evidence that are going to cause us to stretch. And we might even go, Jim, I, I hate to say this, we might even go a few seconds longer in this first session, which we're going to make up at the end, okay? Because our last session is going to be short. So I want to stretch you, though, in this first session to look at three pieces of evidence in the universe. Now, I'm right now writing a book called uh, God's Crime Scene. It's the second book, and uh, we'll be talking about ten pieces of evidence in the universe, but we're going to talk today just about three. Three that I think have to be explained. And we can explain them only one of two ways. We can explain them by way of some um, set of natural forces, unguided natural forces that could explain these three phenomena. Or we could explain them through uh, some supernatural source that has designed and created the universe. And so these three pieces of evidence, I think, are pretty elementary. It will start here. To say that uh, we're in a universe that has a beginning, we have to make that case. Are we really in a universe that has a beginning? And to say that there are organisms that appear to be designed doesn't mean they are designed. They just appear to be. And a lot of folks who are, are naturalists would, would say, yeah, there's an appearance of design, but they would deny there actually is a designer. And then finally to say, hey, there are, are there any transcendent objective moral truths? And if there are, how would we account for these in a universe? So let's take a look at this today. We're going to look at these three different uh, pieces of evidence. And we're going to start with this first one, which is really about evidence for God's existence from the nature of the universe. And there's a lot of good work been done on this on both sides of the issue. And so today we're going to take a view that is we're going to basically drink water out of a fire hose. And so we'll start, and I hope you can just kind of hold on, and it makes some sense to you. Now, if you were to walk in this room, and you were the first person in the room, you got here really early today, and you walked in, you unlocked the door, and you're the first person in the room, yet you saw a soccer ball rolling across the floor as you entered the room. What's the first thing you're going to look for? Why? Why would you be looking for a person just because you have a soccer ball rolling across the floor? Why? It had to start rolling somehow. You're looking for somebody who kicked the ball or started rolling the ball because we have an intuitive kind of innate sense of something called causality, that we know that things like this just don't start moving on themselves. Now, it doesn't have to be a person. Maybe there was an earthquake or a tremor in the room that caused the ball to start moving. But you're looking for some cause, and that is really because you have an understanding of the principle of causality, even if no one ever taught it to you. And basically, I'm going to give you some rules for causality that I think most people would embrace. Every effect has a cause, and everything that begins has a cause. The effect here is the rolling ball. The, it began to roll, and so it's an effect that has a beginning. Anything that is changing has a cause, and as this ball is changing its location across the room, you have to use this principle of causality to ask, how is that so? Why would that be so? Everything that is finite has a cause, and everything that is limited has a cause. This is known as the principle of causality, and really, it'd be hard to do science if the principle of causality was not true. Now, we can talk about quantum physics and quantum mechanics and what happens at a small level, and if you want to go there, we can do that during the Q&A in the afternoon. But even, I, I would argue that even the principle of causality really has an application in quantum physics. It's hard to get away from doing science. We assume that if I do this, I'm going to cause a reaction that I can measure and I can do science. Because we assume this principle of causality is in place. Now, why do I even bother with it? I think lots of skeptics 
would it have to grant you? Even though Hume may have argued that, that it's hard to know how we would know this to be true, he never denied the principle of causality. So even somebody as skeptical as Hume made a statement here that I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. Now, the reason why we're talking about causality is that we're not going to turn a corner with it and apply the, the causality to something called the cosmological argument. And it's an argument for the existence of God based on the cosmos or the whole universe. Now, I'm going to give you the, uh, the cosmological argument in its most robust, not most robust, but in a, a robust form so you can see it first, and then we'll talk about how to dissect it, Okay. So here's the cosmological argument, basically, for God's existence. It says that the universe has a beginning. And and we know from causality that anything that has a beginning must have been caused by something else. And therefore, the universe must have a cause, because it has a beginning. Now, the cause itself cannot also have been caused, because if that was the case, you would say, well, what caused it? And then what caused it? And we'll talk about why you cannot do that infinitely in a second. So everyone's looking for the first uncaused cause. Not just the theist is looking for this. Even the atheist is looking for what could that cause be that itself is uncaused. And finally, we would say that cause is God because you'll see the descriptions seem to fit the nature of God. Now, like any argument, your foundation starts the whole thing. If the foundation is wrong, it's going to lead you to the wrong place. So usually when I'm talking to people, they'll attack the foundation. Do we really live in a universe that has a beginning? Is there any evidence for this? I think there is evidence in a number of different ways. Now, before we begin, though, I'm going to have to make a clarification on what I'm talking about when I say that the universe has a beginning. What I mean is that everything we see in our universe came from nothing at some point in the past. Everything came from nothing. And what I mean by saying everything is I simply mean all space, time, and matter. Everything we consider in the natural world came from nothing at a point in the past. This definition of nothing is important. You'll see why in a minute. But this is the argument we're making, is that everything came from nothing. Now let's just take a look at that argument for a second. I'm going to introduce something that most of us as Christians would say, no, 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 no. Big Bang Theory? A lot of Christians reject the Big Bang Theory because they tie with it other principles. And I understand that. There's a big thing about the Big Bang, though, that I want us to get our hands around. So we're going to talk about Big Bang cosmology. It is the standard cosmological model that someone like an atheist like me would have embraced. We're going to talk about Big Bang the, uh, the, uh, the Big Bang Theory. But when I'm talking about the Big Bang, I want you to know what I am talking about and what I'm not talking about, what I do advocate and what I don't. So, for example, when I'm talking about the Big Bang, I'm talking about the most important thing about the Big Bang, which is that everything came from nothing. That's the principle that all of us, if we're a Genesis 1 Christian believer, we believe this. Everything God creates in that first verse, it's the most important miracle God God does, right? It's the biggest. He creates everything from nothing. Now, what I'm not advocating and what I'm not saying, by the way, when I say everything, I mean all space, time, and matter. But to say that I am going to camp on this issue related to Big Bang cosmology does not mean that I'm advocating for any other particular views, like, for example, the theory of evolution. If you've got a theory about how life changes over time, that's another discussion. You can accept this big thing about the Big Bang without and reject evolution altogether. You can reject an unguided process of change over time through natural selection, yet still accept that everything came from nothing. 
Make sense? I'm also not saying that the universe is either old or young. If you are, uh, there's going to be Christians in every group I talk to that are divided on this issue. How old is the universe? How many days are, don't, don't, that's another debate. We're not going to have that debate here today. There's no point in it. The point that we all agree on, though, is that everything came from nothing. How long ago it happened, that's another debate. So we're not going to, this discussion does not lock us into a certain age of the earth or a certain age of the universe or into evolution. The Big Bang is going to argue for one thing more important than anything else. Everything came from nothing at some point in the past. How far in the past? Another argument. The fact that it came from nothing, that actually makes sense. And it makes sense evidentially, and it makes sense theologically from a Christian worldview. So again, what I'm arguing for when it comes to the Big Bang is not for any of those things. It's simply for one big thing. Everything came from nothing. That's it. No more, no less. Are we on the same page? Because I've been at, at groups where you can't even have this discussion because once they hear Big Bang, it's like they, they, they're done. They're out. I get that. I'm sensitive to that. But if you understand what Big Bang cosmology teaches, I'll bet you're going to think twice about it. Because the, the, the thing about a Big Bang is that if this Big Bang actually occurred, we have to ask what's the most reasonable explanation for who banged it. The problem, of course, is that Big Bang requires a Big Banger. And so we're going to have to actually figure out what that Big Banger looks like. Now, we're going to talk about it from a purely evidential perspective right now and from a philosophical perspective before we even get into Scripture. So we'll talk about it first is, does the world look a certain way? And guess what? What a a crazy thing. We have ancient Scripture that actually confirms all of this before anybody even knew it. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's take a look at some of the evidence for the beginning of the universe, Big Bang evidence. This guy's work is really still pretty foundational, and as though many years have passed by since he wrote this book, really he still has encapsulated the major thinking on this, so I'm going to use it as a guide. There are four pieces of evidence for the beginning of the universe that are hard for any of us to get around, whether you're a theist or an atheist. The first is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, you didn't come to this, I'm sure, thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't really to think about the second law of thermodynamics, this is going to be so boring. We'll go really fast. This idea here, though, is that you have entropy, the increased entropy. While the quantity of energy within a closed, isolated system, and of course we'll talk about whether the universe is that or not, uh, remains the same, the amount of usable energy deteriorates gradually over time. And this is really, uh, usable energy is irretrievably lost, disorganization, randomness, and chaos increase. Now look, there's really hard for me to kind of give you a simple way to get your hands about this, but I think you have an intuitive sense that this is true, because you see it in our own world. We see it all the time, the usable energy that we see me moving from organization toward disorganization. And so whether you uh, can try to analogize it in any, I mean, I've, uh, with young people you try to make it even simpler. But from our perspective, we know that the usable energy in the universe is wearing, is, is becoming less and less. Entropy is increasing. Entropy is increasing. Now the question we have, of course, is if this is the case, why do we have any energy, energy left at all? It's almost as though if you were to walk into a room and see this wind-up toy, right? And this wind-up toy is still running. It hasn't run down all the way. You would suspect there was probably somebody in the room who rounded up pretty recently. You wouldn't say, well, maybe somebody rounded up last week or last month or five years ago because it would have been run out by now, right? If the universe is infinitely old, why do we have any wind-up left in the toy? Shouldn't it have all wound out by now? Now, unless, of course, there's a beginning to the universe, 
and the energy is still winding out. That would explain why we still see energy winding out today. Does that make sense? So uh, the second law of thermodynamics is actually an evidence for a beginning to a universe that was once tightly wound and is now winding down, to make it the simplest possible analogy. But there's another piece of evidence I think is also equally powerful, and that's the expansion of the universe. It's kind of hard to deny that we see expansion in the universe. It was predicted mathematically first by some great thinkers in the early part of the 20th century, and then it was observed by a guy named Edwin Hubble, who in his telescope, if you're familiar with it, observed something he, uh, is, he really is not, it was, it was predicted beforehand, but he actually made observations that confirmed it. So he gets all the credit, right? That's the way it always works. If you're going to invent something, you want to be the guy who makes it popular. Then all of a sudden, you're the guy who invented it, I guess, even if you weren't. But the point is, the law of redshift was something that he discovered by looking through his telescope and realizing that the light spectrum on the galaxies he was watching were shifting toward red. What I mean is, if you look at the light spectrum of galaxies through a telescope, if they are moving towards you, they have a tendency to bend that light spectrum towards, like a Doppler effect, toward blue. If they are moving away from us, the light spectrum bends toward red. And what he observed was that the galaxies around us are shifting red. It's almost as if we had a balloon, right, in which we drew on it the galaxies and we're blowing it up. And so from any position on the balloon, either on the edge or somewhere in the middle, you're still going to see red shift away from your position because you have an expanding universe. Does that make sense? Now let's think about this then in reverse. If this is the case and we have a universe that is expanding, if we go backwards in time, it appears that this best explanation for the expansion is there's a point in the past at which everything is highly dense, highly contracted. And from that point, everything expands. So this evidence from uh, the expanding universe can, kind of confirms what we see in the second law of thermodynamics. Very different disciplinary approaches that point to the same conclusion. Let's go one more step. We have the second law of thermodynamics, expansion of the universe. We also have something called radiation echo, which was discovered uh, initially by these two gentlemen using this great piece of equipment, which I just love, this old picture, Arnold Penzias and Robert Wilson, who were just measuring the background radiation in the universe. Here they are today, by the way. This is 1978, but here they are today, standing in front of their contraption there. And what they were looking for, they weren't actually looking for this, but they discovered this background radiation that has since been confirmed in satellites that have been put in orbit to measure it even more accurately and to take photographs of it. So here's actually a photograph taken by Kobe of the background, the kind of relatively uniform background radiation that we see in the universe. What explains this background radiation? Now, it's kind of hard to analogize, but let me give it to you this way. If, uh, when I was working SWAT, we would constantly have to go in and get barricaded suspects out of rooms. So if I've got a guy who's in this corner, let's see, who's in this corner over here, uh, and he's got three hostages, and we want to get in the room, we're going to throw in a, a flashbang. Now, cops are not great at creating names for things. So, as you know from my guy who's got three Jim Wallaces in his family. So a flashbang, what do you think it does? Pretty creative, huh? So we throw in a flashbang, and that flashbang will come in through this door right here, and that thing is going to be super loud, super bright, and it's going to leave a, a certain kind of residue in the room and ring in your ears for a number of seconds. I mean, it's super loud. It's crazy. It's like a, like a hand grenade without all the shrapnel. And, of course, once that happens, where is he going to turn his attention? And we're going to come through that door. But we're going to get his attention over here first before we go through that door. 
And what happens in the room for a period of time is that everyone who works that room is going to have to suffer with that flashbang because all of us are going to be deafened by it. And so we have to kind of be ready for that and maybe have our headphones on ready to go so we don't suffer as much as he will. But for a season, there is noise in the room and there is heat in the room and there is debris in the room and stuff's kind of settling down. And what we seem to see in the universe is something similar in the background, this this echo of radiation that seems to be in the universe still. And so as you think about, well, how could we possibly explain where this could come from? It seems very consistent with a quick expansion of the universe that leaves this kind of radiation echo in its trail, the same way the flashbang leaves noise and debris in the room after it expands. So this is, I think, consistent. Now, it's another, again, another very different discipline to get you to a similar conclusion. But even if we had no physical evidence, I think there would be good philosophical evidence to support the notion that we're not in a universe that, has a, uh, that is eternally old or infinitely old. We are in a universe that has a beginning, a beginning in all space, time, and matter. Let me just present it to you this way. This is called the uh, philosophy of infinite regress, and the best way to describe it is to imagine that you're on a racetrack, all of us, and I take you out tomorrow, and we're going to race 100 yards to see who can win. Look around the room right now. Can you tell who's going to win? Probably. Yeah, Jason thinks he's going to win. But I'm thinking uh, younger folks are probably going to do a lot better than us older folks, right? But let's just say we look down at, from our starting line. Here's our starting line. And let's just imagine for a second that there was no turn in this track. Imagine it just went off straight in both directions. And there's our 100-yard line. That's the goal. The goal is to get to the 100-yard line. That's the end. Now, imagine if I had you set up and you had your racing blocks and you put them in place and you got set in your racing blocks and you're ready to go. But before I start with you, I have my gun up in the air, ready to start that, pull that trigger for the start. And I'm saying, ready, set, up, stop, take your blocks and move them back six inches. And you're like, what? No, just move them back six inches. So you stop and you move your blocks back six inches. And we get all ready to set up and I say, okay, get ready, start, uh, nope, move them back six inches. And every time, just before you're ready to start, just before I'm ready to pull that trigger, I stop you and I make you move your blocks back six inches. That would be frustrating, don't you think? Because you'd, have, you know, you'd never get a chance to get started. Now let me ask you a question. If I continue to do this over and over and over again, are you ever going to get to the finish line? Are you? If I won't let you start, are you ever going to get to the finish line? Only on a circular track, which is why I had to change that, right? Because people have said, hey, you know what? But young people especially will go, I'll get there several times because I'll be going backwards through that circular. But imagine it straight in both directions. So you have to think about, okay, if I don't have a start to the race, I can't get to the finish line. If I keep on pushing the start back and never let you begin, I can't get to the 100-yard line. Does that make sense? That's the problem with a track that has no beginning. Now imagine instead of the 100-yard line that the finish line is today right now, at this discussion, I can't get to today unless there's a start to time. Does that make sense? The same way I can't get to the 100-yard line unless there's a start to the race. And that's the problem, is that philosophically, you cannot get to today unless there's a beginning to time. So if I had no physical evidence, I'd still have a problem with the idea that I'm in a universe that's infinitely old. And that's another very different way of approaching the problem. So when you see, by the way, that several pieces of evidence point to the same conclusion from several different disciplines, you're probably in a good place. 
So if I've got DNA evidence and fingerprint evidence and two witnesses and, and he can't account for his alibi and all kinds of, we'll talk about that in the second session, uh, you probably are in a pretty good place. And it turns out that there's a lot of other physical evidence that supports this notion, which I will not go through with you. You should all be grateful. You actually have evidence for the existence of God right now because I'm not going to go through this list with you. That should tell you that God exists right there because there's lots of ways to come at this and I'm just going to list about 30 or 35 of these. Now, why this matters is because we're making a case for the beginning of the universe. And a lot of our friends are going to deny this because they know the conclusions. Einstein didn't like the conclusions. Most the, uh, naturalist thinkers who have come to this conclusion don't like what it suggests. Because you have to, exp well, how do I explain what begins a universe that had a beginning? Can I explain it through some natural process? So when you make the case for this, today we're going to talk a little bit later about a murder suspect, and we're going to make a case around this murder suspect in the very next session. So keep this in mind, because we're going to use the same principle with these pieces of evidence. Now, we're going to do the same thing now with the beginning of the universe. And in the beginning of the universe, we have the second law of thermodynamics, the expanding universe, the radiation echo, and the infinite regress dilemma, right? And all of these things point to the same conclusion, that we're in a universe that has a beginning. And it happens to be they're also supported by lots of other pieces of physical evidence we didn't even cover. This idea that we're in a universe that has a beginning should be relatively non-controversial. But there are still people who, would, who will argue, but not everybody. And a lot of naturalists who are out there will not argue that we're in a universe that has a beginning. So let's take a look at some of the other things that people have suggested. Uh, a guy like multiverse theories. Do multiverse theories change uh, the dilemma? Multiverse theories are people like Alexander uh, Vilenkin, who's done a lot of work. As a matter of fact, uh, he's pivotal for me. A lot of his work is really important to this case. Uh, how about quantum theories? Like Lawrence Krauss's book here, A Universe from Nothing. Do these kinds of theories change the game at all? I don't think they do. So someone like Vilenkin, who proposes that we're not in one universe, that we're in one of many universes, a multiverse that is infinitely large, even some, if that is true, and there's no evidence for that, if that was true, it wouldn't solve the problem here. He says, and I'll just read it quickly, this is in fact not possible in future eternal inflationary space times as long as they obey some reasonable physical conditions. Such models must necessarily possess initial singularities. As a matter of fact, he's done work now on all the quantum models, all the inflationary models. His work demonstrates that no matter what model you're in, you're stuck with a universe that has a beginning. It is not time infinite in the past. And how about this guy here, Lawrence Krauss? This guy argues that, yes, you can get something from nothing. He was on Stephen Colbert, and he did this interview with Stephen Colbert. I thought it was really funny. He cheats in this interview. I want to see if you see it, okay? Because Colbert's like, you can get something from nothing? How can you get something from nothing? Well, nothing's not really nothing. Nothing seems like nothing to me. Nothing's not really nothing. And he says, physics has changed what we mean by nothing. So empty space is a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles popping in and out of existence. If you wait long enough, that kind of nothing will always produce particles. Do you see what he just did? What did he just do? He's stealing. What do we say everything is? Everything is what? All space, time, and matter. We want to know where those things come from. And the science indicates all of those things had a beginning. So nothing is the lack, is the, is the absence of space, time, and matter. But look at what he just said. He said, physics has changed what we mean by nothing. Empty space is a boiling... Wait a minute. He just stole back empty space. He says, if you've got empty space to start with, well, yeah, no, duh. But empty space is one of the things we're trying to account for. How, where is it? It's not nothing. 
That's something. And he says, if you wait long enough, now you stole time. So yeah, if you've got space and time, you can maybe get matter. But the problem is, where does space and time come from? So what he's doing is he's redefining the word nothing to include two of the things we think are something. Make sense? It's kind of like when your kids come home and they see all this refrigerator. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They get home from school. They're starved. They open the refrigerator door, and this is what they see. What's the first thing they're going to say? There's nothing to eat in there. (laughs) Because you've redefined what nothing is, right? So it's kind of, that's the problem we have here, is we have somebody who doesn't like what nothing implies, so therefore he's redefined it. Let's go back to our cosmological argument for a second. Here we are. Here's the argument. The universe has a beginning. Anything that has a beginning must have been caused by something else. Therefore, the universe must have a cause, and this cause must be eternal and uncaused. The cause is God. Now, one of the questions people will sometimes say is, well, wait a minute. Okay, I might give you this, but how do you get here? Why would you say that cause is God? Well, I think if we examine the attributes of what this cause could be, it leaves us with a few other conclusions. Take a look at what we're talking about. We're saying that the cause of the universe is itself uncaused. Because if it has a cause, we have that infinite regress problem. Right? You're going to ask for the cause of that thing. All of us want to know what is the first thing that is uncaused, that somehow lies outside of space, time, and matter, and is powerful enough to have initiated everything. We know it's all-powerful. We know it's, if, if it's the source of all space, time, and matter, nothing creates itself. So it cannot be spatial, temporal, or material. It has to be the opposite. It can't be those three things at all. So we're looking for something that's all-powerful, uncaused, non-spatial, atemporal, and immaterial. Okay, what's it starting to sound like? I would go even one more level. I think that the cause of the universe must also be personal. Now, to get here is a bit of a step. We've stretched a little bit. I want you to stretch a little bit further. I want you to think about why would the cause of the universe have to be personal? Well, because only two alternatives here. This force is either a personal force or an impersonal force. And we are familiar with impersonal forces like gravity. They're just an impersonal force of nature. Right? As a matter of fact, if there's no gravity in the room... What happens? Everything's floating around. And we know that impersonal forces, the minute they enter the environment, you feel their effect. The minute I put gravity in this room, you're going to feel its effect. Gravity does not come in the room and go, not yet, not yet, no, no, hang on, not ready. Okay, now. Gravity doesn't do that. The minute an impersonal force enters an environment, you feel its effect. So if I was to insert gravity, bingo, right away, you're going to feel its effect. That's what happens with impersonal forces. Make sense? Now let's think about this carefully with the beginning of the universe. If the cause of the universe is an impersonal cause, an impersonal force, that means that the minute it appears, the minute it begins to exist, you must feel its effect, like gravity. That means we would know that the cause of the universe is only as old as its effect, the universe. You follow with me on that? If the cause of the universe is an impersonal force, it's only as old as the universe itself because impersonal forces don't wait. They don't, don't, make, they don't have a will. When they enter, you feel their effect immediately. But is that what really is happening here? We know that that's not the case because that, you have the same problem. You're, what causes that cause then? What causes that cause to exist? If the minute it exists, you feel its effect, we know how old it is. What caused it? We're in that infinite regress problem. The thing we're looking for is uncaused. 
And the universe, its effect is simply a matter of the will of this effector. Make sense? It's the will of that first cause. And when you start talking about will and decision-making, you now have an attribute of personhood. It's far more likely this thing is, is personal than impersonal just based on this issue of, of whether or not an impersonal force effect is felt immediately. That makes sense? So now I think we've got a list of characteristics that we would say, wow, that seems to me to look a lot like a cause that I would claim is God based on its basic... If I didn't know anything about Scripture or anything about anything, I think we could make this case. Now, is there something in Scripture that can help us a little bit? Yeah, I think there is. If you look at Psalm 102, you'll find verses, many verses like this. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. Uh, they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Do you see one of the principles we talked about in this verse? What is this saying right here? The heavens will... Why would an ancient Jewish writer, the author of this psalm, look at the stars and think they're wearing out? For generations, these constellations haven't changed. We're still looking at Orion today the way they were looking at Orion back then. Why would you look on observation alone and assume from just pure observation that the heavens are wearing out? I don't see how you could ever come to that conclusion. But he writes it as though he knows. The very thing we described with the law of entropy. Or how about this, Isaiah 45. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I don't ever want to overplay some, uh, lit, some uh, literary style that you see in the writers of the scripture, but you always see this expression repeatedly when discussing the creation of the universe that God stretched out the heavens. Just interesting. Does it prove, doesn't prove anything. It's just another piece of the case that I think is interesting because it seems to be consistent with the idea of an expanding universe that God is stretching this universe out in front of us. And of course, Genesis 1 has the, uh, probably the most important verse of, of, uh, for our looking at this issue altogether, which is that there is a beginning. By the way, you might think, well, duh, that's like a figure of speech. I mean, you see this kind of stuff all the time. You even see it uh, here in 1 Corinthians where Paul writes at the very end that God destined all this uh, for our glory before time began. But don't think for a second that every religious cosmology fits the evidence. My family, my dad remarried, um, divorced my, my mom when, he was very, when I was very young, and he remarried and has six kids with a uh, woman who's LDS. So he's got, I've got six brothers and sisters, all Mormon. And Mormonism does not teach that the universe had a beginning. In Mormonism, the cosmology is very different. It's an, it's an, an infinite universe in which God's got a father who's got a father who's got a father, and there's an infinite regress issue in Mormonism that is hard to resolve with the physical evidence. But our worldview, as ancient as it is, predating all of those worldviews, actually gets it right. So if you look at this, this is one piece of evidence in our case, a universe that has a beginning. And these are our explanatory possibilities. Now let's take a look at the second piece, which is the organisms appear designed. This is evidence from design, the teleology, from the shape of things, and we'll talk about it in terms of an argument called the teleological argument, sometimes called the watchmaker argument. And telos is simply for design, and its parent of this kind of classic historic parent of this argument is William Paley, who designed, uh, who created or coined a term called the watchmaker argument because his argument was basically, hey, if you were to walk down the street and discover a watch with all of its intricacy on the ground, you would never assume that came about through natural processes. You'd say, wow, the kind of interdependency and the way this is mechanically designed, everything fits together for a reason. It appears that there's a watchmaker 
And is the world similarly structured, our biological systems similarly structured, to give us the appearance of a, a grand watchmaker? That's really the issue. So I'll give it to you in a couple different ways. Here's a, one way to put it. Human artifacts like watches are products of intelligent design. We would never argue you could get there some other way. And if you look at some of the uh, universe around us and the world, even our biological uh, uh, world, you see things that seem to have similar artifactual kind of similarities. And if that's the case, and we know that, that watches are designed by intelligent designers, isn't it therefore reasonable that the universe, if it displays similar attributes, is also designed by an intelligent designer? And, but of course, the universe is highly complex compared to the watch, so the thing we're looking for is probably going to be a lot smarter than us. Make sense? And a kind of a simpler way of putting it is this. Our intelligent and ordered universe demonstrates qualities of intelligent design, but that assumes it does. And therefore, there must be an intelligent designer who designed the universe, and that designer who exists, we would say, is God most reasonably. Again, if the first premise is wrong, the conclusion is wrong. So is the first premise wrong or right? That's what we're going to talk about. How would I know if the world around us even displayed any attributes of design? Well, I feel I'm lucky. I feel like I've, I've had some experience as a designer in this, so I've kind of tried to isolate three attributes that I saw in my own work as an architect that would help you recognize design when you see it. And I'll give it to you here on the wall. I think if you see this, on one side you can assume a natural process did it. On the other side, that a designer did it. If you see these attributes, first, is it probable or improbable? Can I get there through a series of random events, likely, or is it unlikely? That's going to be an issue. If you walk in on the, and you see on the, on the wall that someone has, and there's a chalk, piece of chalk on the ground, and you say, someone says, I'll be back in 15 minutes, it is possible that some natural forces cause that. But it's highly unlikely. It's highly improbable. And it's on the basis of probability, you decide, no, that's probably a message for me. So sometimes probability alone can be a good indicator. Also, is it reducible or irreducible? We'll talk about that more in a minute. And is it random or specific? I'm looking at these comparisons. If these three on this side are in place, then I'm not going to try to argue necessarily God's hands in it. But if they're improbably irreducible and specific, then I think we do have a designer involved. And let me give you examples of these three things. We'll start with this issue of probability. I want you to remember that when Darwin, for example, was looking at the intricacies of the single cell, he would call it the simple cell. And in most of his literature, he refers to it as the simple cell. But I want you to think about that for a minute. Is it really that simple? Of course, when you're looking at it the way he was looking at it, it did appear to be pretty simple under the kinds of magnification he could get at. So looking at it under simple magnification, that cell looks like it's not much to it. It just kind of sits there. And it looks rather simple. And if that's the case, you might uh, get to simple things with a high level of probability. If, on the other hand, you can get in tighter and see what's really happening at the molecular level and you discover that it's not simple, then I think it's less probable you can get there, right? So if it's got some complexity, I think it's less likely that some evolutionary process can get you there, especially given the time we're talking about. So when you see things at a microscopic level and realize that the quality of life, the abundance of life at the microscopic level is really much more complicated than anyone had a, an idea, this is why you see Darwinian evolution is always changing to accommodate new discoveries at the molecular level. Understand that every theory changes. But is it adequate to the task at all? And are these features of just a high probability or less probability? Let's take, for example, the, this little critter here, which is a bacteria that moves itself around by wiggling that tail. 
that tail spins on the backside of that bacteria and it moves it. The tail is called a flagellum. A bacterial flagellum is simply uh, a motor in the wall, the lining of the actual uh, critter, which is built on a number of proteins that come together in this amazing shape. Every one of these proteins has to assemble in just this way in order for this rotary engine to come together and whip around in a circle to move the bacteria around in its environment. And what you're seeing here is a building block like Legos of different pieces of protein, amino acids, coming together in certain shapes that are then assembling, like Legos, into this elaborate whip called a bacterial flagellum. Now, I want you to see the intricacy of this because we have to account for it somehow. How did this thing come together over a period of time? Now, I, I showed this video because you see it coming together one piece at a time, right? And that's the way evolution works, is it has to be assembled one piece at a time. And if there are ten pieces to the machine, the organism has to have a use for the nine-piece thingamabob that actually benefits the species, benefits the critter. So it can be passed on. It will not die as a result of this, but it will actually be beneficial to the critter, and it passes on. Evolution is additive. The first protein does something beneficial for the critter, so he, those who have it survive better. Then this two-piece machine does something that actually benefits the critter, and you have to have a functional pathway up the path to how many pieces are involved in the machine you're looking at. So, for example, you see a lot of molecular machines that are made out of dozens of proteins that are all come together in a certain shape. Think about that for a minute. You've got to build it one piece at a time, and if the thing that only has one piece doesn't work for that critter, it's not going to be advanced. Make sense? That's the problem when you see machines that, we'll come back to it in a minute, that are really um, um, highly technical, highly elaborate, highly complex. Are they probable? Another problem, of course, is reducibility. Is it irreducibly complex? What I mean by that is that irreducible complexity is a game changer. It's a deal killer for the natural process. And Darwin knew this, and he wrote about it. If something is irreducibly complex, you cannot get there through a natural process of evolution. And what I mean by irreducibly complex is simply this, is that it has all these pieces assembled at the same time for the same reason. Let's take a look at our bacterial flagellum. This is actually, uh, instead of an animation, this is actually some photography, a video of this tail whipping around. Do you see how it spins? So here's what actually happens if you look at it in terms of a, um, uh, a chart. Uh, you have this um, uh, flagellum motor, it's like a rotary motor from Mazda, that's built into the wall of the bacteria. It spins right here and causes this tail to whip around, and that's what motivates it. By the way, it can stop immediately, change direction. It can put a bend in the tail. To have a, so it's very directional. It's not just random. It, it, it's actually able to stop in reverse order very quickly. So here's an animation. I'll try to get it really close. Not a great video, but you'll have to bear with me. A friend of mine made this for me, and so it was very small when he made it. I'm making it very large for you guys. Here is the uh, tail, and now here's an actual photograph of what's happening, which you're really seeing. This is the actual proteins being photographed, a high level of resolution, and you'll see in there the rotary, and you'll see all the pieces of the engine being put together. And guess what? All of these pieces need to be in place before this thing will work. This thing will not work. Now, most bacterial flagellums are right around 20, 25, 21 pieces. 
they will not work when reduced from the design they're in. If it's a 21-piece bacterial flagellum, it's inoperative at 20. You have to have all 21 pieces in play at the same time. How do we get all 21 pieces in play at the same time through a natural process? See, when you see irreducible complexity, you realize you've got a design feature. Irreducible complexity is a design. I'll give you another example of this. Let's say I tasked you with um, putting together a, oh, I don't know, uh, a mousetrap. You know, if you're in America and you want to make a dollar, you want the least expensive mousetrap you can possibly make, right? You want an effective mousetrap with the least number of parts. That's going to be the cheapest to build. So let's say I gave you that task. Let's see what that might look like. Um, here's a mousetrap. Probably the standard mousetrap made. You cannot actually make it with less than these six parts. These six parts, the wood and the five pieces of metal bent in a certain way. This is the smallest number of pieces to make an effective mousetrap. Okay? Without one of these pieces, this trap will not spring. You have to have all six. Now, you know just from looking at it that it's not going to come together in that shape naturally. It speaks of designer. It screams of designer. Why? Because it's irreducibly complex. It only works with these six pieces shaped this way. Make sense? And that's why it's so powerful. When you see um, a complexity like this, irreducible complexity, you know you have, in this case, a mousetrap maker. That thing didn't happen like the watch. It's because it's irreducibly complex that we come to that conclusion. Now, let's take a look at this again and compare it to this motor. Irreducibly complex in 21 pieces, not just six, 21. How do these 21 come together? By the way, there are people who will argue, well, yeah, but I've seen this. One of these proteins is used elsewhere in the bacteria, and it's effective over there. Maybe it's just simply being barred. No, no, no. I needed a pathway then. You have to show me what with 20 pieces helps the bacteria. What with 19 helps? You've got to show me how I get from 1 to 21. If it's going to evolve, it has to evolve by the incremental step-by-step. Step. Remember, irreducible complexity is about having many small parts that all appear at the same time. Are we clear on this issue? Okay. Now, the reason why I'm showing it to you is because Darwin wrote about it in Origin of Species. And he wrote about it as the deal killer. And I'll read you what he says. I'll eventually read you what he says. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And so when we see a, a, a piece of equipment at the molecular level that cannot be built on many successive small pieces, we at least know that it's not reasonable that that piece came from natural sources. It's too irreducibly complex. Last one, is it random or is it specific? This is where most of us have an intuitive sense we recognize when we see design. So let me give you an example of this. When I say specific, what I mean is special. This is kind of the textbook definition. Special, distinct, unique, particularly fitted to a use or purpose, resembles other distinctly designed objects. We know when we see design. We don't think about, well, you know, let's talk about its probability. Let's talk about whether it's random. No, we, don't. we just know. And how do we know? Because we recognize other designs in it. Now, one of the biggest problems we have for naturalism is this issue of DNA. Where does DNA come from? What is DNA? It turns out DNA is information. And if DNA is information, we've got to explain where that could come from. Make sense? It's specific information. So, for example, a great thinker on this who's written a lot talks about this DNA. You know, if you're not familiar with DNA, I'll give you a little quick re uh, brief uh, uh, refresher. 
this string of DNA, this strand of DNA is made up of nucleotides. The nucleotides, there's four kinds of nucleotides. And these four nucleotides are actually language. They are in a certain order. It's a very long string. For each uh, organism, it's either longer or shorter. The nucleotides are ACTG. And when they come together in DNA in a particular order, it's like language. And the DNA language is instructing that molecular machine how to form. form. If we're wondering, how do those pieces come together in that bacterial flagellum? Well, the DNA instructs that process. They are in that order because the DNA has told it to be so. It's, it's information that instructs and is decoded and then made real. It's information. Well, how do we get information in DNA? Where does that come from? Can that come from a naturalistic process? That's the question. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at this through Stephen C. Meyer, who wrote a great book called Signature in the Cell. This guy's really smart. He's got a new book out right now that's doing fabulous in the New York Times called Darwin's Doubt. But this book was a wonderful book. Really thick, hard read. There's a great money line in it, though. I'll give you the money line. Here it is. There isn't a single example anywhere in the history of the universe in which information came from anything other than an intelligent source. If you see information, you know it had to have an intelligent source. We cannot get to information randomly. Information comes from an intelligent source. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say um, I get my, I've got a dog. How many of you guys have got, got dogs? Raise your hand if you have a dog. Not as good as my dog, sorry. I have a corgi named Bailey, which is the best dog I've ever owned. I've owned a lot of dogs. This dog is the best. I'll have corgis from this point forward. Corgis are really smart, really sweet, happy dogs. But if I put Bailey on a, uh, my, heat, my, my computer and let her type, she's not going to type much I can understand. This is probably what it's going to look like. As smart as she is, that's not information. You know why it's not information? Because I could ask you, what is she saying? What's Bailey trying to tell me? I don't know. Information has to be both coded and decoded. There's no message from Bailey when she bangs on my keyboard or she walks across my keyboard. So this is not information. It's just random characters. What if I could teach her, though, to be really focused and maybe just repeat the TH space, TH space, TH space over and over again? Would that be considered information? No. A simple way to determine it is, what is she trying to tell us? Information tells you something. Nothing there. There's no message in that information. That's not information. What if she's really good? I can teach her a few more characters. I can teach her to do this. Panda, 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 panda. Is that information? It's more complex. No, she's not trying to... What is she trying to tell me? No message. What if she all of a sudden has an epiphany and bangs this out? Wow. There's a message in there. There's a message in there. And that's the difference between information and any other kind of random sequence of, of, of characters. As a matter of fact, you know from just looking at it what she's trying to communicate. Now, you also know it's information because I can test it. If it's information and I make one small change, the message will change. That's the nature of information. It cannot be just randomly modified without changing the message. So let's just say I inserted a comma right here. Now I've changed the entire message, haven't I? She used to be a sweet panda who was coming in to eat, shoot, and leaves. Now she's evil panda who's coming in to eat and then shoot and leave. <laughs> See the difference? And we changed the sentence because we changed one piece of the sentence. That is the nature of, always the nature of information. 
Now let's take a look at DNA. Billy the Kid here. Here's Billy the Kid on our wanted poster. What if we just changed one piece of the information in DNA? If it really is information, a small modification will have a big change in what it's saying. And we know this already. My son, who's a, I've got one son as a cop, the other son's a med student, but he was a microbiologist before he was a med student. And I can tell you that he, he was doing all kinds of genetic research, right? Trying to make small changes in kidney disease by just changing DNA. And he'd get great modifications in the kidney disease because he's, it's information. Here, same thing is true. Let's take out this G and let's just change one character in the DNA line. Let's put it in A. And we would expect then that there would be some resulting effect, which typically is the case, maybe his nose is bigger, his forehead, ears are changed. Something will change by changing the genetic code. And that's how we can test it to know if it's information. So we have information in DNA, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, how did it get there? Specific information that fits these criteria, and that means you've got an intelligent source. If this is the case, we have to ask, where does that come from? And we recognize design. Now, we also recognize design in a simpler way. Let's say, for example, I was to take you to the beach here in San, where I live in San Clemente, and I was to take you to the beach on the ocean's edge, and we walked along and we looked at the patterns that the ocean makes by moving seashells against the sand. Those are some pretty neat patterns. But you would right away recognize that that set of patterns made by the waves is just a natural set of patterns. You wouldn't say that that was somebody who designed it. The waves caused that. And those kinds of random movements, event causation, you can see that those can result in nice patterns. On the other hand, if we went to the same beach and we walked on that beach, and instead of just seeing the kind of movement of the sand, you actually saw something written in the sand. If you saw... Um, this written in the sand. You would never assume that that was created by natural forces. You would suspect there's somebody nearby who wrote that, pretty recently because it hasn't been washed up yet from the water. You'd be looking for an author. Why? Because you recognize design when you see it. Well, why do you recognize design when you see it? Well, you look at those letters, right? And you say, I know those letters. I know letters. And these things appear to me to resemble the same kinds of things I would see elsewhere. I recognize a J and O, and H. We recognize design when we see it. Similarly, if I was to take you to, to North Dakota, and you looked at this beautiful um, set of mountains, you would probably assume that this beauty has been created through natural forces, as you should, because wind and rain and water can cause this kind of thing, right? If at the same time I took you to the same set of hills and turned the corner, and you saw this, you would say, oh, time out. Now, natural forces can't cause this. Why? Because you recognize something that is designed from other things you recognize are similarly designed. So as you look at these faces and you say, wow, it's not only just that it's Lincoln's face, it's that it's Lincoln's face in that same pose we always see Lincoln in, right? I mean, you never see Lincoln crying or, you know, picking his nose. You never see any of that kind of stuff, right? You always see that one view of Lincoln. So when you see it, you recognize it. You say, okay, I recognize that. I've seen it elsewhere, and we recognize the design feature. Does that make sense? So we recognize design when we see it. Now let's go back one more time. Let's take a look at this bacterial flagellum motor. This motor is spinning around, and, and we could ignore it, or we could say, wow, I recognize that. I mean, I see in there a sense of design that I recognize from other similar motors that humans design. As a matter of fact, the rotary motor is, is pretty common, and we see it looks a lot like the bacterial flagellum. 
So we recognize design features, and it's a reasonable inference, I think, then, for us to say, well, no, that looks designed. For example, you would never go out in the woods with me out here, and if we were to walk out in these woods and say, oh, yeah, guess what? I come across this in my path and go, wow, isn't this a great forest? I mean, motors grow in this thing. It's crazy. No, we'd assume someone left the engine there. We would not assume it grew out of that woods because we recognize design features in that motor. So I don't know why it is it's so hard for us to look at design features and not recognize them. I think when you look at these three issues that we really have uh, the presence of the highly improbable, the irreducibly complex, and the specific that leads us to believe really that we've got the qualities we need in order for this argument to exist. Make sense? Okay, so looking at that, let's take a look and some scripture and see if there's any scripture that kind of talks to this issue. In Isaiah 45, 18, for the Lord is God and he created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived and not to be a place of empty chaos. It's always seen, as a matter of fact, early scientists were all, uh, most early scientists were theists who believed you could study the universe because it is a place of order in which God has designed certain laws actually there's a reflection of his orderly nature and so we can expect there to be a certain level of order and natural law in the universe because it's simply a reflection of god's nature and that allows us to do science because we would expect this we're not going to be surprised something's not going to pop into existence right next to us there are certain natural laws that are simply a reflection of god's nature and we see this in scripture all the time first corinthians twelve twenty five. I think this is great because Paul uses the irreducible complexity of biological systems as a model for the church. He says the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part, the parts we mention, the parts we don't, the parts we see, the parts we don't. There's a certain irreducible complexity in biological systems and he suggests that that same kind of biological complexity exists in our church body. Okay, now let's put our last argument here. We're pretty good. I don't know how we're doing on time, but I apologize if we're going a little long. We'll make it up at the end. We are looking now at this last issue of a transcendent objective moral truth. I'll tell you, this is a tough one. And I have a talk I do just on truth. And I run a test with young people and older folks across the country and in Canada to see if they even accept the idea that we have. So you might say, hey, um, are there subjective truths? Matters of opinion, of course. But there are objective truth claims, right? And so you have to ask yourself, well, are there really any objective moral truth claims? You know, people have no problem saying uh, Jim's car is white. That's an objective claim. The car is either white or it's not. The object is white or it's not white. Not my opinion can't change it. So that's an objective claim. If I say, oh, the car is a, white's a cool color, subjective claim. That's a matter of opinion. If your opinion can't change it, then it's an objective claim. Simple way to know it. And so you might say, well, one plus one is two, objective claim. Math's a fun subject, subjective claim. Then you get to things like, well, God exists. Can't tell you how many Christians go, well, uh, not quite sure if that's objective or subjective. Really? Let's say you're an atheist. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that God, the claim itself doesn't have to be true to be either objective or subjective. But will your opinion change whether or not God exists? No. So it's an objective claim. I could be wrong, but it's an objective claim, right? Someone's got it right, someone's got it wrong, your opinion can't change it. It's not a matter of your opinion, it's a matter of either God objectively exists or he doesn't. But then you get to issues like premarital sex is wrong, 
and nobody wants to argue, that, nobody even wants to make a claim that this is objective. Everyone wants to argue that it's subjective. You'd be amazed at how that happens. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are there really any objective moral claims that transcend us? And this is what's called the axiological argument. And it goes something like this. Axiology, it comes from the axiology, which is a study of values or mores or, or laws. And the argument sounds something like this. First premise, there is an objective, transcendent moral law that transcends all of us and is objectively true. Second premise, every law has to have a lawgiver. So, the question then becomes, therefore, there is an objective, transcendent lawgiver. But what, who could that be? What could transcend all of us and be the source of law other than God himself? Simple argument. Again, it's based on its foundation. If the foundation is wrong, the conclusion is wrong. So most people will attack the foundation. Foundation is that there's an objective moral law. This is a hard sell for a lot of people. And they'll say, even you Christians don't believe in an objective moral law. Let me ask you guys a question. And this is where we kind of have to really think through this issue. Is it ever okay to kill someone? Is this an objective law? Is this an objective moral law? We, I think we're going to divide pretty quickly right here in this room, right? Every room divides this way. Don't, don't feel bad. But is this an objective moral law? Killing is never okay. Does the Bible teach that killing is never okay? Are there any exceptions in the Old Testament for killing? We call them in California justifiable homicides. There are some homicides you can do in California. I will not come after you for those. They're not triable. They're not punishable. They are um, justified homicides. What are they? Do you know? Self-defense. It's also right straight from Scripture. Well, that's, that's true. Capital punishment, the authority of capital. That's, but it's a, as a citizen, if you knew, as a citizen, you have the authority to do capital punishment. So you do have the authority to do other kinds of, of, of killing that we would call justified homicide. One would be in self-defense. The other big one is when you have to save the life of an innocent. If you've got a guy who's in the room and he's taking out children, and you know I can take him out and save the rest of these kids, should you? Would, that be, would I try you for homicide, for a murder, if I found that you killed him before he killed five more? No, I wouldn't try you for that. That's a justified homicide. And those two exemptions are in Scripture. They're almost word for word in our California Penal Code right out of Scripture. It's funny. Even lying in wait, which is an advanced penalty in our state, if you're lying in wait and do a murder, that's actually a death penalty case. It's a death penalty enhancement also in Scripture. And some people will ask me, well, why is lying in wait one of those? They can't quite, quite understand. Well, you could argue for it to be in or out, but really what it is is directly transferred from Old Testament law. Lying in wait. So there are two exemptions in which we would say killing could be okay. If you're trying to save your own life and someone's trying to get you and your family or your kids and you had to stop them using deadly force or they were going to kill your kids, you could actually be justified in using deadly force and we would not try you as a murderer. It's not that, it's the distinction is between killing and murdering. Well, what about this? Is this an objective moral claim? It's never okay to lie. Is it ever okay to lie? 
Yes? Give me an example. Rahab. Yeah, Rahab lied and she protected it. Now, what was her justification for lying? Turns out it's always the same two justifications, isn't it? It always defaults back in Scripture to saving the life of an innocent or saving your own life. When you've got a hostile aggressor who is unjustified in his attack, you can use deadly force to stop that attack. Lying is the same way. What about this, though? Is it okay to steal? Let's do a little Jack Bauer 24 thing. Let's say I, I can steal the code that is going to be used by the terrorist to kill a million people. Should I steal it? I mean, it's sitting right there on the table. I said,